welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. I'm Simon Taylor from 11FS, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Tom Blomfeld, CEO of Monzo. Tom, how are you? Very well. Good afternoon. Thanks for being back on the show. A little bit more dressed down than last time you were here. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what I was doing last time. I, I can't. I was in. I was dressed in black tie. But I can't remember. Yeah, where it was, I was going. a tuxedo, some awards thing. Mm, uh, who knows? Uh, too many awards in your life. So <laughs> um, let's just do a quick recap. So we have a lot of international listeners now on Fintech Insider. So um, let's just recap who are Monzo. Sure. So Monzo is a new smartphone-based bank in the UK, providing current accounts to retail customers. And you guys started more as a prepaid card with an app, and you're now flipping to current accounts. So can you give me a feel for how many customers do you have as prepaid card users and how many customers you have as a current account? Yeah. And so we, we launched a prepaid card as a sort of a prototype. We always intended to get a banking license and launch a current account. It was just going to take a, a bit of time. So the prepaid was a way of sort of getting early feedback. Um, and it, it went just way better than we expected. Um, we thought maybe, maybe five or 10,000 people might take this prepaid thing because it wasn't a full bank account. It wasn't fully featured. Uh, we hit almost half a million. Um, before we, we paused signups about three months ago to start the migration onto the full current account product. Um, we have a live counter on monzo.com. Um, as we're recording this, I think we're up to about 175,000 current accounts with a pretty, a pretty regular stream of people over. Um, we'll be serving notice to wind down the prepaid scheme at some point in January or February, I think. We're just going through the process of, of notifying customers that they can upgrade and, and a Swaging some of their concerns. I mean, ninety percent of people are very happy to do so, and ten percent have have sort of these questions like, "I, I love the prepaid card because of X, Y, Z. I don't want a current account because my current account from big bank does all these nasty things." And it's a, a sort of process of education, saying, "Well, the current account actually doesn't do any of those nasty things your big bank does, so uh, yeah. we really would like you to upgrade these because <laughs> you can use it exactly the, the same way as a prepaid card." So the use is the same. So a couple of things there that interest me. First and foremost. Would you, if you had to do it again, would you launch the prepaid card first? And what did you learn from that approach? Because we've seen uh, different approaches in the market. Atom have gone straight into lending. We've seen uh, Tandem buy out Harrods Bank and go that route and look at a bit more lending. Uh, We've seen Starling build the fully featured sort of account. And now that's out there, it it does a lot more. So would you do it again? What have you learned as well? Uh, For sure, I'd do it again. The prospect of spending a couple of years without any customer validation or customer feedback really scared me. I had no idea if people actually wanted what we thought they wanted. And the prepaid scheme was a really good way of proving, uh, sort of figuring, not even proving our hypotheses. Many of our many of the things we thought were wrong. And we figured out a bunch of other things that we didn't know. And so the primary, there were a couple of things that really um, were surprising and unbelievably valuable. One is... Um, how emotional people's relationship with their money is, how they're they're influenced by um, not always rational economic factors, but uh, behavioral psychology more than anything, uh, and emotion and anxiety and hope and fear and all these very powerful emotions. The second thing is we figured out how to how to do viral growth. Um, so just before we paused prepaid signups, we were we were onboarding probably. Uh, 65 or 70,000 funded accounts a month with almost no marketing spend. So we figured out these kind of uh, network effects and these viral mechanics that I don't think you could strategize. I think you have to just sort of through trial and error, figure that out. And so we've got this very, very powerful growth engine um, that we're about to, to turn back on. So 
golden tickets will be coming back to the current account in January, probably. Uh, you heard it here first. Golden tickets are coming <laughs> back. Get get ready for those golden tickets. I know they were were much loved when they, when they did appear. So this, but on the other side, what um, what lessons did you learn the the hard way? Was there anything where you kind of look at it and go, oh yeah, learn from that? Because I see you know, there were lots of outages. There was downtime. There was having to communicate with customers a lot. There's, uh, for example, there was uh, having ATM fees. Um, all these sorts oh, yeah. of things. Yeah, I, I think it let us learn about a bunch of those things that if we had, if we were only now launching our first product in the market, we would have had to learn all those lessons on the current account. So how much of your technology do you outsource to third parties versus how much do you build internally? We got elements of that wrong. And we've been able to, because we had that early signal, rebuild a bunch of it internally, which we're now much happier with, for example, or ATM fees. Um as you start to move into a mainstream audience, you see ATM usage change. So our super early adopters cost us in the region of £6 per year on ATM fees. When the heavy travellers got involved, it, that escalated up mm-hmm. to £15, £16 per user per year, yeah. which was not sustainable. And so you're going to have to learn that lesson at some stage. I prefer to learn the lessons early to be able to fix them and then have a product that, that works well rather than spend two or three years without any signal and then, you know, learn on the job, if you will. And that customer feedback is crucial to being able to learn that. But do you think, you make a really interesting point about as you move into the mainstream, do you think you've been lucky that you've had a customer base that wants your product, believes in your product, and likes how you communicate, and that changes once you become a mainstream bank? I don't know. So it's certainly, it's not for everyone. And the, the debate becomes, how many people is it for? This sort of colloquial style we have, this informality, this uh, transparency. Um, it's definitely not for everyone. We think it's probably for 75 or 80%. Others might argue it's only for 5 or 10%. It's hard to prove that sort of predictively. I, you just look empirically at like how big can we get. Um, it, frankly, it's not just engaging in that kind of hypothetical debate at this stage is sort of... It's hard, isn't it? It's hard and almost pointless. It's like other people have their strategy, we have ours. Like, we'll see which one works. Where did that informal style really come from? Did it just come as being entrepreneurs and that felt right? What what was the genesis of that? Or did it just happen and you were sort of like, this felt right? I mean, what was... I don't know. I've... I've, looking back, it's hard to pin it down to a single decision or a single person. Um, in the very early days, Jason was really involved in sort of helping to shape our community strategy and our sort of transparency um, before we had very many customers. Tristan took over as head of marketing. Uh, Tristan joined as an intern, I think. Like a, Jason actually hired him as a, um, I think he was like a community intern or a social media wow. intern. He's now our head of marketing. Huh. Um, and a lot of it has come from him and his personality and this sort of... Um, very genuine sort of, uh, I don't know, just empathy, I guess. So I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a combination of our personalities and sort of the things we believe. And also it's just, it, it, it seems to work really well. It's surprising how well it works. But secondly, it makes life easier when you don't have to have like a dual narrative, like the internal story mm-hmm. for your staff and then the external, like what are we allowed to say externally? If it's just all of the same, actually, 
that is the way the same with our communication style that's just the way we talk Jason always laughs at my um, PTSD from big bank days when uh, I've had to do <laughs> and one of the anecdotes I'm thinking about is um, changing terms and conditions that had to go into telephony and to the post and via SMS and the arguments over where a word was placed by mm-hmm. an auditor but unbelievable so I think it, it probably simplifies things from a, from a cost standpoint as well but it, when Monzo does go down, when you have technical issues, you tend to give a lot of technical information into what the error was and how you resolved it. Yeah. Do you think that's something you're going to be able to continue doing? Because at the moment, you could argue, and I don't know if this is true, you'll know this better than me, that your customers are somewhat in that tech bubble and they appreciate it, but mainstream customers might find that scary or, or off-putting in some way. Well, so uh, firstly, hopefully we have less outages to, to <laughs> explain away. Um, secondly... Even now we have half a million customers, I would suspect less than 5% engage with that kind of content or, or would understand it if they did engage with it. So already it's not, we don't have half a million programmers as our customers. <laughs> we have a few thousand. Fair. And it's, I think it's just reassuring, and we have a lot of mainstream customers now, and it's reassuring to them that their techie mates sort of had a look and went, actually, yeah, this this seems legitimate. Yeah. Um. So I don't think we're a million miles away from the mainstream already. That's interesting that, yeah, everybody's got their techie friend um, and actually having legitimacy or credibility with them actually has a network effect. And you talk about this viral growth sort of thing. A lot of products and services these days do come from the tech community. It's the tech heads that buy the Teslas first and then everybody wants them. It's it's, it's always that kind of of way down. the one question we got from the 11FS team when I, when I put it out that got the most um, emoji reactions inside Slack <laughs> was um, alongside current accounts, we really want to know if you've got plans to enable a joint account anytime soon. So we publish our roadmap online. It is on our roadmap. I can't remember exactly where it is, six to 12 months out. It's not something we're actively working on right now, honestly. There are a few key features for the current account we need to get to first. POTS is something that is a enabler of joint accounts. So a joint pot is a nice way to sort of mm. get towards that view. We debate this internally, whether sort of joint pots are enough or you want a fully integrated sort of transaction feed. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting because I, I think it's one of those things that do get really emotional. Like I've married someone and I feel like our finances should be intertwined. It's a symbol of our, of our oneness and our commitment which is a very emotional thing. And sort of some of our designers like, well, you know, isn't it much more useful if you each know what you're spending and then you combine it sort of at month end? And it's like, well, no, it's it's an expression of our union. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. It's an, and everybody's going to be different on that spectrum sure, because yeah. some people might not be doing the joint account or they are and then they've got private accounts and then they've got their own spending pots. And so that emotional side of it, you just can't get away from. It's, it's interesting. So uh, next one up was uh, the news recently that the big banks just got an extension from the Competition Market Authority for their uh, APIs and PSD2 around open banking. Mm. So as a quick recap for listeners, in the UK, the Competition Markets Authority had said, banks, you must provide data level access to transactions and other bits of information inside a customer's bank account to third parties under this secure framework. My question to you is, did you expect this sort of activity? And, and what do you think of the approach of the big banks versus challenges? Is something is regulation going to make a difference? Or are we really reliant on the challenges to to change the market and, and the market's going to drive the change? 
A lot of questions there. Sorry, um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, you can start with them one by one. <laughs> Let's start with the first one. Did we expect this? Uh, this in this specifically? Uh, no, uh, some kind of rockiness. I think we described like the implementation was going to be rocky. There were going to be sort of hiccups and delays. This is one form of rockiness, so not unanticipated for sure. It goes back to strategy, really. There are people in the industry who have kind of pinned their colors to the to an API strategy or to a you could build Monzo on top of the APIs. Why do you bother going into banking license, building all this tech, raising all this money, blah, 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 blah. You should just do it on top of APIs. And that, there's a, a theoretical purity to that argument, um, but a practical reality that makes it really difficult, which is that these APIs are going to be slow and going to be broken and, and just won't work to start with. And I don't want to gamble the future of my business on the big banks sort of opening up really easy to use APIs. I'd much prefer to have control in in my side of the courts and yeah, take all the pain and upfront cost and compliance and risk and regulatory burden that we've gone through for the last three years, but then have almost entire control of, of the full stack. Mm -hmm. I think in a period of time, you could rebuild a Monzo or a whatever the winning model is on top of a pure API-driven model. But I think that period of time might be five or 10 years away. Yeah. So I think the the immediate future of open banking PSD2 is going to continue to have trouble um, until it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> there will just be a moment in which it flips. And I, I, my own thesis on this has been, yeah, for some time, we're going to see disappointing results from the big banks in terms of APIs because where's the carrot? Like, where's the upside? They they have a large percentage of the market and do they need to be opening themselves up to potential uh, competitors to mm -hmm. them versus somebody who's coming into the market to acquire new customers that can offer a new feature that hasn't lost that customer yet. There is only upside. It's, yeah. it's a bit less zero sum. For sure. Uh, yeah, or it even shrinks the market size entirely, which is which is really painful for big incumbents. I mean, you do you see some of the big banks? So HSBC brought out their uh, their aggregator app, mm -hmm. I think. So some of them, I think they've all got an API strategy. I think. I don't think they're as enthusiastic about that as they are just maintaining their, their existing propositions. And it feels to me like just another compliance program rather than something that could be a strategic opportunity um, that's across the top and bottom and middle and, and throughout the organization being grasped with both hands quite the way it possibly could be. Uh, for sure. But it varies bank by bank, I'd say. That's that's a really interesting interesting perspective. Uh, so the reports recently that you may quote unquote do an IPO in the next three years. Um, how, how do you know where this came from? Do you know yeah, how true that is? I do know where it came from. Uh, it was my sloppy copywriting. Um, <laughs> so you can trace the first mention of an IPO back to our maybe not the first a prominent mention of the IPO back to our annual report where I wrote a three or four page sort of introduction explaining what our strategy is today and what it will be going forwards, um, and we warned um crowdfunding investors that they weren't they wouldn't have liquidity anytime soon basically mm. that's why we talked about ipos like the only way you're going to if you invest in monzo you get shares there is no liquid market for those shares today you can't sell those shares you can't sell them and you will only be able to do so at an ipo that might be five or seven years away is, is sort of the message we put out with our crowdfunding but you haven't said 
It is going to be. You said it might be this period of time yeah. for so much to happen. But then you. what happened after that was we we um, started advertising for a, a chief financial officer, a new right. CFO. And in that we put, you may do an IPO in the next three to four years. And then the Financial Times and Telegraph got very, very excited. Wow, Monza's accelerated its IPO plan. It's like, well, or Tom's just a sort of sloppy copywriter. <laughs> <laughs> and or you're trying to attract a very strong CFO who might appreciate sure. the challenge and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, so it's, we don't, plan a roadmap or a business strategy in the same way a big bank does. When you're growing between 1% and 4% a year, it's really easy to plan. <laughs> Last year, we grew, uh, I don't know, over 1,000%. We grew 5% week over week. And so trying to plan on anything more than about a 16-week time, time scale is basically impossible. So to say an IPO is going to be two years or four years or seven years is frankly anyone's guess. Startups operate in an environment of very high uncertainty, and it's about retaining optionality, um, keeping you, you know, keeping the options open, being able to react to changing market conditions. Or we launch a new product feature that accelerates our growth threefold, or we launch another product feature that totally fails. Mm -hmm. You can't really forecast business in that in that environment. You really have to play it by ear. So yeah, we will IPO at some point in the future. I I bet. Um, I don't know when that's going to be. It's an interesting alternative to the um, City AM headline of we get several offers to be acquired per month, which again, City AM, shout out Lindsay Barber and everybody at City AM, great headline choice. Um, so is acquisition off the table in, in your mind? It's not our goal. Yeah. I can't rule it out because stuff changes. For me, sitting here today, an acquisition would feel like a failure. Mm -hmm. I'll probably regret saying that. In three <laughs> Somebody or four will years. spin it out of context or something. But you know what I mean? Like the the companies that really make an impact on the world tend to be those that stay independent, that IPO and and are strong founder led businesses. The Googles and Facebooks of the world. Um, the ones who get swallowed up do so because they weren't able to meet their objectives on their own and they they needed more support or whatever and that might happen to us i i really hope it doesn't but so it's not plan a for sure interesting interesting perspective and i think i i speak to a lot of uh kind of more cynical bankers who suggest oh once they're acquired they'll just become like first direct and it'll be a nice challenger brand and it'll mm. go away and surely that's the only possible exit so what do you see as like the, the longer term business model because people have thrown this at monza for some time is like surely a current account by itself can't be profitable um i think you've answered that before but ha has that thinking evolved in terms of where your profitability is going to go because i saw um you're looking for a VP of lending, right? So you're definitely looking at lending now as, as potentially a business line. Oh, for sure. Uh, we've intended to do balance sheet lending from day one. It's always been part of our business plan. Mm. I see it as a medium term um, uh, revenue driver. The long term, I think this sort of worries me. If, if everyone agrees on this being the end game, it probably is wrong. But I think there's sort of consensus within the fintech industry, I guess, that the winning model is a um, is a hub is a control center, is a, a platform or a marketplace. So as a consumer, you have a set of different financial needs. You have diverse different providers maintaining 15 or 20 accounts to manage your money is a pain in the ass. And wouldn't it be nicer if that was all brought into a single place to give you visibility and control? So that's our end game. That That's what we're aiming for. But it's also what a lot of other people are aiming for. So Tandem, probably Starling, uh, probably Revolut, N26 in Germany, a lot of the aggregators and price comparison sites all have this sort of end game in mind. It then becomes a question of of tactical execution of uh, like what is the best entry vector or attack vector to, to try and get there. 
because it has massive network effects. It has huge economies of scale. And the business model there is basically that we become your sort of trusted financial advisor is, is a tricky regulated term, mm-hmm. but a, a sort of financial partner, maybe yeah. also somebody, somebody's on your, like, I, I'm, I'm struggling to say something without coming up with a marketing slogan for another bank. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's standing next to you. It's, it's kind of got your back. Kind of yeah. Like, Jason always used to say it's like a good waiter. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's the model we're going for. Basically, a marketplace that helps you f- um, find and, and pick and interact with these different service providers, saves you money or earns you money or um, saves you time and takes uh, some kind of service fee or affiliate fee or profit share off the back of that. Simple example, as your bank, it's pretty easy to tell when you've gone from fixed rate gas and electricity tariff to a variable rate. If you switch back to a, a, a fixed rate, you typically save 250 or 300 pounds a year. 60% of households don't do that. This marketplace in the future could make that really, really simple. And for the convenience of saving 300 quid, what's a fair profit share? I don't know, 30 quid, 45 quid. So it's th- that kind of model times 15 or 20 different products. It's your mortgage, it's your car insurance, it's your phone bill, it's um, it's your savings investments, your ISA, it might be cash back from, uh, from retailers. All of those things aggregate in, in, this, in this control center. That is our ultimate end goal, but you need massive scale to make it work. And what's your thesis on how you get there? How do you become the choice for consumers to to get there? We're taking the approach of like going with a current account and yeah, trying to get people's salaries in, which as many, many people on Twitter have noted, like has historically not worked for loads of people, I think. But it's the one we're betting on. We're seeing great early data on people actually putting their salaries in. Um, So a a few kind of tactical points. One, make it really easy to get started. So let let customers dip their toes in before they fully commit. So you can get a a hot crawler card, put 100 quid on it and away you go. You don't have to start with your salary. Most sort of explosive consumer internet companies have that very fast onboarding. Second, you have to build in virality or network effects somehow. Users have to get other users. You cannot pay linearly um, or even sublinearly for for acquisition. As you grow, acquiring customers via paid advertising typically gets more and more and more expensive. Mm -hmm. You never reach a mass scale like that. Companies like... Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever, always have these viral loops built in. So you need really, really fast onboarding. You need the viral loops to to get more customers in to build the massive scale. Then you need access or visibility over all of their di- the kind of transaction data. Typically, that's salary, it's direct debits, it's standing orders, it's where they're spending. And then you need to go and find an ecosystem of partners who are willing to plug in and and sort of give your customers better service. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a phenomenal undertaking. I think it's going to take ten years. Um, so that's uh, a heck of a journey you've got in front of you. That's a, it's a 10 years to IPO. So the flip side, though, like the, the counterpoint, the argument is like you're spending all this time doing all these hard things. Why don't you just build an aggregating hub on top of the banks? You don't have to get the salary. You don't have to get people to switch. You deliver them 90% of benefit with 10% of the effort um, and you'll build massive scale. But per the uh, CMA delaying, right? You, can you count on that? I, I wonder. Is, is, uh, I think I'd, I'd probably agree with you on that assessment. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank, and the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. 
This episode is brought to you by TopTel. Andres Garcia used TopTel to solve a very familiar problem. He spent his career on Wall Street, so friends and family often asked him for recommendations for financial advisors. But he struggled to find the right people, so Andres started Zoe Financial, a digital marketplace to find top independent financial advisors for their clients. So Zoe helps high earners find the ideal financial advisor from a curated list of top advisors here in the United States. We tried working with online job boards and agencies, uh, but they just didn't have the talent we uh, expected. We had many interviews and we wasted a lot of time. We needed certain specialists when it came to design as well as development work. And we understood the value of finding quality top talent. So TopTal was a natural fit for us. TopTal use a rigorous screening process to make sure they find problem solvers who value integrity. Typically, they accept fewer than 3% of applicants into their network. TopTal access their exclusive network of top freelance software developers, designers, and finance experts to find the right person for you. So we're writing a mission statement on the industry, where it is today, where it's heading, and how Zoe is going to help mold that future. So our thought process was that the wealth management industry at the high end is not commoditized, that there's still value there for having a human uh, advisor. Alex was able to validate our business model by finding the data to prove that the best advisors, the elite advisors, are disproportionately winning more business than anybody else. And we're able to make them part of our network, we're going to participate in that growth. I mean, the contribution from Alex is tremendous considering it, it proves with data that our business model could not only succeed but thrive in where the industry is going. I felt that he really became part of our team. You could sense that he really cared about this and he wanted it to be as successful as possible. And, and that's a, something that's not as tangible as in a resume, but we found time and time again, when we go to TopTal, we find that, that type of characteristic, right? And so for us to be able to bring in somebody that talented, almost kind of like fly him in, do an amazing job, and then allow us to kind of move on, it's, it's pretty powerful. You'll pay no recruitment fees or termination costs, and usually they'll find you the right top teller in less than three weeks. So if you're hiring into a key project or just looking for your next star hire, check out TopTel. To find out more, visit TopTel.com. I'm curious though as to like have it has anybody been annoyed with you yet? And has anybody gone like, um, just let me have my prepaid card, damn it. I don't want a current account. Like, cause I've had that experience where I've gone to pay for something at Sainsbury's. There's a giant queue of people behind me at lunchtime and it's like, do you want our current account? It's like, no, I just need a top up so I can pay for a thing. <laughs> <laughs> we've had so something like of the people we've prompted, 95%, even higher, probably 99% of people are like, yes, definitely, I'll do it. A bunch of them like drop out or along the way because they're like, oh, I don't have my passport, my driving license on mm -hmm. me, or the the card's been posted and it's sitting on my my tabletop at home and I'll get round to activating it. So it's like any acquisition funnel, there's drop off, yeah. but 99% plus of people are super engaged and happy. The minority, the very, very small minority, <laughs> I don't know what the numbers are, um, but it's very, very small number of people say, actually, I don't want it. And we'd call them up. We we've talked to hundreds of these people to try and understand why. And what they say is things like, well, I really like with the prepaid card that, that there's no overdraft. I can't, I can't go into an overdraft accidentally. It's like, well, what if that was true of a current account as well? What if we didn't slam you with mm -hmm. unfair, unauthorized overdraft fees? And I'm like, oh yeah, that would be great. But, but all banks do. So I don't want a current account because all banks <laughs> screw me over. So there's sort of an education point that actually you can use the current account exactly like the prepaid card. 
And we, we are doing migration for selfish reasons mm-hmm. because the prepaid costs a ton to run, mm-hmm. because it's based on a bunch of third-party infrastructure. Um, and, and by migrating over, it lets us build a sustainable business to keep providing the service that people love. We couldn't make the prepaid model work long-term. And so, yes, you might love it, but it's just not sustainable. Yeah. And so by switching over, you can retain all of the benefits. Um, it really is, when we talk to these hundreds of people, it really is these hang-ups that they associate from their old big bank. Mm-hmm. My old big bank did these nasty things on my current account. Therefore, I want to stick with the prepaid card because I worry you're going to do the, all these nasty things. And it's it's just a process. It's these of emotive things. Again, it comes back to those emotions that are, that are preventing people moving yeah. forward. Or like my credit score is going to be impacted. Like I'll go overdrawn, I'll get a load of fees, and I won't be able to get a mortgage. And it's sort of like explain to people how this actually works, um, which can be tricky. It can be very tricky indeed. So uh, I guess... Has it been uh, really difficult kind of getting your head around the being loved as a prepaid card to being potentially the e-corp, you know, like everybody sees banking as being evil. And can you educate people that it's been, yeah, it's it's an interesting set of ideas to play with. Um, I don't think most of our customers know or care about the difference between a prepaid card and a current account. Interesting. I don't think they should have to care. I think it's something... bankers obsess over like what is the underlying financial product and for our users it's like it's a monzo card and an app and it's like yeah we're sorry we have to replace your hot coral card with another hot coral card but like nothing's gonna change Uh, you know no worries same experience yeah so as we go a little techie um do you have any plans to really ramp on the android side or do you see iphone as being still the test bed for everything you're doing i can see you holding a pixel um, <laughs> I'm, I'm also holding a pixel so, <laughs> big, which by the way on our emoji wall of fame in fact everybody in this room michael and producer laura all have pixels so you listeners and uh, david and jason there you have it your iphone uh, x is, is just not good enough but on our emoji wall of fame like pixel was put way down and it seems like certainly the the in crowd of fintech doesn't really favor it but if you're playing to a mainstream audience yep. is that something you'd have to ramp on for sure and that is that is the reason i got a pixel i was an iphone user until about six months ago mm-hmm. and we weren't taking android seriously enough as a company mm-hmm. because 90 percent of the company uses iphone frankly most not all i'm gonna get flamed on twitter for saying this but most of the tech early adopter crowd skews towards ios not android most of our early user base even before we had a product out, it was 90% skewed to to iOS. It's now about 60% iOS, 40% Android, still skewed. Um, but as we go more mainstream, absolutely, we have to take it seriously. So our Android team is now seven developers strong or something, I think. We built the first iPhone app with one developer <laughs> in nine months. So uh, you should see it improving pretty rapidly. I've got an early build with the Pulse Graph on Android now. So that's coming soon. Um, Pots, I think, are live. All of the monthly budgeting stuff. Um should move more quickly it's the challenge is just aligning the two platforms it's sort of we're working feature by feature now across both iphone and um ios the issue becomes like if one is ready before the other do we delay it on one platform in order to get the other one up to speed so like everyone's sort of worse off because we delay everything Mm -hmm. or do we launch it early on one and and risk pissing off half our user base and typically we've gone with uh just launch it early and kind of be transparent yeah um Uh, there's definitely a feeling from uh, as pixel owners that you can end up being a second class citizen but uh, 
the prepaid card holders could potentially feel the same if 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 they're not converted over. I'm guessing you're going to not put new functionality onto the prepaid cards, and it's all going to be current accounts. Absolutely. So, I, uh, uh, POTS came to only current accounts, not prepaid. Mm. We won't be developing more features for prepaid. It will be going away um, in the first sort of quarter of next year. Oh, Android Pay. That's the the thing that came to uh, to Android before iOS. Ah, there. Well, yeah, that that would make sense. It'd be nice to see in tokenized payment capabilities. Let's say. There we go. <laughs> Nerding out. Um, so for those of you watching, you can see that uh, Tom lit up and, and nerded out for us. But for the listeners, that was that was quite fun to see. So I, I, I briefly intimated at what was the biggest lesson you'd learned in the last year and what would you do differently? I guess it's um, uh, interesting. I saw um, a headline about is Monzo the Facebook of ban- banking suggested by The Guardian this week. Maybe it's headline writers uh, that need to be avoided. <laughs> but, but where do you see yourself uh realistically in terms of scale in three five years what would great look like and and what have you learned that you'll be using in the next couple of years i'll answer the first question the the second question first which is sort of what have we learned and what we're using um i wish we had developed our lending functionality um in more depth six or nine months ago um getting to profitability per customer even marginal profitability, i.e. They, each customer drives more revenue than they, they incur in costs, allows us to scale without burning more capital, mm-hmm. broadly speaking. If you're marginally loss-making, every new customer just burns more cash and you just dig yourself into a deeper hole. So we've got some really interesting lending products coming out very soon that fit in really neatly with um, with POTS and the idea of cash flow smoothing. So I'm really, really excited about that, but I'm also sort of annoyed that we didn't work on it um, six or nine months ago. And how do you position new lending products versus being an evil old bank that's just trying to gouge you with fees or catch you in the overdraft? Yeah, so you don't have any hidden fees or charges. You make all lending products explicitly opt-in. You never accidentally slip into it. You have to say, yes, I, I'd like to take this product. And you give people full visibility upfront of what, what the total cost is going to be. Like, mm. this is a maximum it could cost you do you want in and in and in real currency rather than aprs and that yeah sort of thing. I, most people from our consumer research much prefer pounds and pence we have to show aprs in some cases but they will always be with a pounds and pence figure that people can can kind of hold on to knowing okay i'm a week away from from 10 days from payday if I borrowed now, the maximum I'd possibly pay is five pounds. That's really reassuring to people to know my maximum exposure here is five quid. That sounds reasonable. That's a pint in a in a trendy London pub. Yeah. Um, so those kind of principles, like not gouging people on hidden fees and charges, but then also fitting it with people's um, mental accounting. So POTS is just, POTS is one of those features that shouldn't work so well. <laughs> you know, it it's, I had, there was a, a long debate on Twitter about stuff being, merely present presentational you know it's not hard technology so it's almost it doesn't matter customers interact with this presentational stuff as and it really impacts them so being able to sweep some of your money aside so it's out of view actually has has almost as much impact of like literally locking it away so it's not visible to you you feel like you can't spend it's it's really emotional yeah, um, it's it's that human side of it again, that emotional side of it. Jason often talks about the um, the, the various different cargo cults of being human centered in design and and kind of I, I observe in the work you're doing and the work great uh, consumer internet companies do as being about that sort of one percent, that zero point one percent of tiny tweaks that everybody else thinks is is pointless. Yeah, um, having logos in the in the stream, um, having kind of 
cleaned up transaction information, having a Google Maps, yeah. all of these things feel like silly little presentation things. Yeah. But actually, when you get into the reasoning behind them, they make more sense. Yeah. So what do you think the uh, the lessons for that for, for bigger banks might be or for, for as you design new products in lending, especially? This is really easy to say, and the big banks themselves say it. it. Just start with the customer. When you're starting out thinking about a problem, like a problem space, don't start with your existing product set of mortgages and overdrafts and credit cards and fixed terms loan, fixed term loans. And you shouldn't be asking how can we tweak these things. You should be. This is such a cliche, but you start with a customer. You actually go and talk to the customer and have a conversation about their life and the challenges they face and the worries they face and their hopes and and their dreams. You know, really, it's these these cliches, but it really works. But when you say talk to a customer, I think the hidden in that sentence is a, is a different tactic. There's a customer experience team who do research from customers they've never met with a third-party research firm that package that and put it into PowerPoint and build personas that hand that to a design team. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, the PTSD is coming out again. <laughs> versus, no, actually go and just talk to some customers. Yes, like they're, they're there in, in meat space. You know, We've like, had people join from, from big banks and in their first sort of month on the job at Monzo, we just make them go and talk to 40 or 50 customers and they've come back and said a it was amazing like i misunderstood so much about how these people live their lives and b i've worked for 15 years in a big bank and i never actually talked directly to a single customer yeah and i just or an engineer it's yeah it's absolutely crazy um so it seems obvious yeah just talk to people and understand them and apply sort of empathy so what's exciting you when you're getting up in the morning these days and coming into the office? What's what's the thing that you go, yes, this is why this I'm This podcast cycle. <laughs> well, yeah, no, we're, 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 little engine that could, we're growing. <laughs> um, that's a good question. I love working with our product and design teams um, and our engineering teams. So my favorite meetings every week are those where we're looking at how recent product launches have done, what the consumer feedback is. So recently, it's been all about this whole upgrade process from prepaid to current accounts. We're doing a ton of user research um, every week. We're, you know, a- Anyone who drops out at any stage, we go and interview them and and sadly distill out, or it's such a size, distill it down into a PowerPoint deck that we present at our, mm. our meeting, um, and then figuring out what product tweaks we can make in future. So I love working with design, product, and technology to f- to figure out the evolution of the product. But it's kind of hands-on product stuff you're doing at CEO level. Like you are still really wanting to know these metrics. It's not sort of uh, sure. just kind of flying around in jets yet. To the frustration of our, our product and design team, yes, that's <laughs> absolutely true. We all we all really get very deep into our, our product sort of metrics dashboards. We use Looker on top of BigQuery. It's absolutely amazing. So you can dig in from literally a single customer doing a single thing to cohorts of people over many, many months. Mm-hmm. You can see in real time how a new product rollouts are going. Um, Explain cohorts, because this is something that I've um, been really delving into in the last sort of 12 months as I've um, been into the journey of Startup Land. Uh, Explain that versus uh, other ways of looking at metrics. What what is a cohort and and how how do you look at change over time with cohorts? So the use of sort of cohort analysis, I guess, is is most pronounced where you can iterate really, really quickly. Your product is changing quite rapidly over time. And so you might say, 
um, you might segment your cohorts on the basis of the week in which they signed up or the month in which they sign up. So all of our customers who signed up in August versus September versus October versus November, how are they performing on some metric you care about? That might be how much are they contacting customer support in their first two weeks or how many transactions they're making or are they still retained after a period of time? So after, after 60 days, say, how many of that cohort are still using Monzo actively? And the, the great thing about cohort analysis is basically very quickly over time, you can see if you're making it better or not. So the August people may be only retained at 55%, but the October cohorts are now retaining at, I don't know, 70% because of, and you can really, if you A-B test it, especially you can, you can really pin it down to specific product changes, uh, which is pretty cool. So we run cohorts on all, all sorts of stuff. Our big thing at the moment is, um, is unit economics. So we can track the cost and revenue, the marginal cost, the marginal revenue generated by any single customer. And then we can put it into cohorts. So we might say we made these product changes. It might be time-based or it might be, uh, I actually looked at gender the other day just to see if there was a difference. So iOS versus Android. Um, and you can basically see if these product changes are having a positive influence over time. And you can really see that on the top and bottom line directly within within the cohorts and, and the changes. That's really, really interesting. I, I think it's something that in startup land is super well known. It's kind of normal for consumer internet companies, not normal in financial services, certainly um, with the people I've spoken to. So thank you for, for kind of sharing that. So before I let you go, I'm going to ask you uh, to just do the ridiculous thing. We always talk about clouds and dirt at 11FS, like the, the tactics we've talked a lot about but what's what's your hopes and dreams and you know sort of you're retired in 20 30 years time you look back on monzo what did it do and where is it what what do you, what change do you want it to be so on the front page of our investment deck for the last at least four or five rounds it says we're building a powerful financial control center for a billion people around the world so i think we have the opportunity to to build this service that makes people's finances effortless that improves their lives in even in just a small way to reduce anxiety or stress or give them more control or visibility or save them money. So I think we can have a positive impact on people's lives. And I want to multiply that by as many people as possible to, to basically to sort of leave the world in a better state than we found it. Like ultimately that has to be if not a psychopath, I guess. That has to be everyone's goal. <laughs> yeah. right? I don't know. Um, uh, but not the hooli uh, make the world a better place type thing. <laughs> yeah. And it, reduce any of these sort of corporate missions into a, a soundbite and they they sound like cliches mm -hmm. sort of i think that's how they happen um but yeah produce a positive change in the world and like have that impact over as many people as possible and it's a it feels like a 10 or 15 or 20 year journey um, it, it is this powerful financial control center i think someone's going to build it i think wechat actually are really close to building it for a billion people in china already yeah. um, but i think someone will do that for the western world this aggregating platform that that manages all of your money. That's where we're going. And why would that be you and not big tech? Gosh, how long have you got there? Uh, uh, um, because I think each of the big tech companies have their own sort of sweet spots, their own DNA, the things they're really good at. And to be really good at managing your money, I think you need a, a set of attributes that the big tech companies don't have, like huge amounts of trust being one. Facebook, for example, is really, really good at Social about viral growth and social. It's it's WhatsApp and and Instagram and Facebook and Facebook Messenger. Really, really good at building huge communities, but relatively low trust. I think Google is really good at web scale platforms, Gmail, Google Maps, etc. Apple is really good at high end devices. Amazon is good at, at selling stuff really, really, really cheap. None of those I think are in the sweet spot of um, the trusted confidant that, that manages your entire financial life. 
I think for any of the tech companies to get there is quite a big leap from their core mission. They might still get there. Who knows? It's interesting you use the word trust. Banks always talk about trust being the, the thing that they've got that big tech hasn't. But something that's born of tech that builds trust with customers in a different way is, is certainly an interesting prospect. So, uh, Tom, for those living under a rock, where do they find out more about you or Monzo? <laughs> uh, we are at Monzo on Twitter or monzo.com on the uh, interweb, or you can download our apps from the the Google Play Store or the um, whatever the iPhone equivalent's called now. I've forgotten. <laughs> iTunes, the iTunes Store, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for that, uh, Android loving. I, I appreciate it <laughs> deep down. And thank you for putting Play Store first. And most of all, thank you for being on FinTech Insider once again. Thank you, Simon. And thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please, please subscribe to our podcast. Review us on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. And befriend us on Facebook. Why not? We're friendly folks. And you can find us on Twitter as well. That's all for now. Thank you. Thank you.